Good morning, everyone. I know that uh, some of you like fruit. Is that right? What's your favorite fruit? Strawberries? Peaches? Bananas? Oranges? Kiwi? Anybody like kiwi? Pineapple? Okay. You're a Hawaiian man, right? Uh, I have some pictures of some fruit. And Heather, would you throw up uh, the first slide? Doesn't that look good? Yeah. I mean, now, now Don, I know you really like fruit, right? <laughs> you really like fruit. When, when you don't have anything but vegetables and fruit, you really like fruit, right? What's your favorite fruit? Oh, bananas. Bananas. Yeah, watermelon. Watermelon, papayas, yeah. guava. Little oranges, tangerines, yeah. Okay, that looks good. How about the next slide? That looks good too. And you know when you see something like that, it, the fruit's going to be really sweet, right? How about the next slide? This is a fruit salad, and, and we had an amazing one on Thanksgiving, and that, that looks really good. Well, what about bad fruit? Uh, throw the next slide up there, Heather. Uh, this is hanging on the tree. Doesn't that look just delicious? Yeah. How about the next slide? Um, not much better, right? I, I don't even know what that fruit is. Um, yeah, it does look like a cherry, but it looks... Uh, I would not eat that. Um, how about the next slide? Of course, fruit can go bad, right? And uh, that is some good apples and some bad apples. But how about this one? This just takes the cake, right? Um, it's, I think, an orange... Maybe a lemon, but because of the shape, I think it's an orange. On the outside, it looks fairly good, but you open it up, and it's pretty what? Man, that is nasty. Now, we're going to be in the book of Luke, but we're going to jump first to another passage in Luke. So turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, Jesus uh, is going to talk a little bit about fruit. Actually, he uses fruit in many of his parables, but on this one... He gives us a little saying, and it begins in verse 43, and uh, let's see, it comes out of the, the uh, Sermon on the Plain. It says, for no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, right? It says, for each tree is known by its own fruit, for figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good, and the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So whatever fruits in here is going to come out, it's either going to be good or it's going to be nasty, right? Good or bad, that, that's it. Now, the context of today's passage is we've had the triumphal entry, right? We had that two weeks ago. Jesus comes in and everybody is, is just hailing him. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then last week, we looked at how he, he came over the crest and saw Jerusalem below him on the Mount of Olives and his heart broke. And he started weeping. Luke's the only one that records that incident in the Gospels. His heart is broken because he has come to Jerusalem, 
Jesus is 33 years old. He had his bar mitzvah probably at age 13. For 20 years, he's been coming to Jerusalem, particularly as the Messiah in the last three years. He began his ministry by cleaning the temple. If you remember that in John, he will end his ministry by cleansing the temple again. And so he knows what he's going to find down in Jerusalem, and it just breaks his heart. Now, in the Gospel of Mark, it says this. And it's interesting. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it, but it's very interesting. It says, And he entered Jerusalem, that is, after the triumphal entry, and he, he cries on the Mount of Olives. He entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, it was already late, and he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Many people think that Jesus cleansed the temple the same day of the triumphal entry, that's not actually accurate. Uh, Matthew just throws it in. He doesn't tell him he went back to Bethany. But Mark lets us know. But what that passage tells us is really important. Because Jesus, on his triumphal entry, he comes into the temple. He's been there how many times? At least 20. And it says he looked around at everything. The Greek word for look means He's discerning. He is looking very carefully at every aspect of the temple. You're like, what in the world is he doing? It means, it's parablepo, to observe, discern, perceive with special contemplation. So when Jesus comes to the temple for the very last time, he really is examining and looking for fruit. That's what he's there for. He is looking to see if there is fruit. Now, in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, they combine another story with the cleansing of the temple. Any guesses? It has to do with a fig tree. He curses the fig tree, right? He curses the fig tree. Now, you know the story. Well, maybe you don't. Jesus is on his way to the temple. He sees a fig tree leaf, leafed out. Now, we understand it's not the season for figs, but even the buds were edible, and the poor people of Palestine would eat the premature fruit if they were really hungry. Jesus goes over to the tree. He looks through it. It's all leafed out. He can't find even a blossom or a bud that he could have eaten, and so he curses it, and immediately it begins to wither. And you're like, wow. So Jesus... Is on his way, he sees the fig tree, goes over to it, and he curses it. Now, it sounds harsh in our ears, right? But actually what he was doing was teaching a living parable because he had examined the day before the temple and found no fruit. That's why he, the, the word, the Greek word was very specific about how he went around the temple and he was looking. He, just like he examined the fig tree for and now he's going to cleanse the temple. But as you know from last week, the temple is now going to be cursed. In 40 years, it's going to be destroyed by the Romans, right? Now, in the Old Testament, the fig tree was oftentimes associated with the, the symbolically for the nation of Israel. And so the cursing of the fig tree was symbolic of Israel. Uh, it, it was cursed because it had nothing but leaves. And in an earlier parable, in fact... Turn there, Luke 13. It's worth going to because it's all about fruit. 
Go to Luke 13, and Jesus tells another parable, again, with another fig tree. And it says this, uh, beginning at verse 6. And he told them this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find nothing. Cut it down, why should it use up the ground? And the gardener, the vine dresser, said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put it, some manure on it. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. And the parable ends. Like, doesn't have a conclusion. But it's interesting, it's three years, and Jesus has come to the temple three years now as Messiah and has still been rejected, and now he says, cut it down. I've given it all the time that is needed. Now, all this background information is just kind of setting up the context. It's, it's teeing it up for us, understanding the why behind the cleansing of the temple. So now let's get to our text, Luke 19, and we'll pick it up at verse 45. And we... And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now Luke does a very concise version of the cleansing of the temple, whereas the other two Gospels give a little more elaborate details. But the bottom line is, Jesus is cleaning house. He has gone in the night before, he examined it, found out that it had nothing to offer, and he's cleansing it. He's cleaning house. And then verse 47 says, And he was teaching daily in the temple. And the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. I just love that phrase. You know, when you heard Jesus speak, you were hanging on his words because he was speaking life. He was speaking truth. He was speaking things that you knew inside your spirit and you're jumping up and down and you're like, right on, that's right, that's right. And they were hanging. And so the chief priests, they want to they wanna shut them down. They want to kill them, but they're afraid of the crowd. Now Jesus is going to teach for the next few days right up to almost to the crucifixion. They're going to have the Lord's uh, uh, last Passover with him. And so he's just hours away. But here's the very first fill in the blank. Israel was fruitless of good fruit. Even when the Pharisees had gone out to see John the Baptist, do you remember that? They come out to see John the Baptist, and John is preaching a baptism of repentance to get ready because the Messiah is coming. Get ready because the King of Kings is coming. Get ready because the Savior is coming. And he calls the Pharisees a brood of vipers. What a nice term. And he says this, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And when Jesus came into the temple after the triumphal entry, he examined the fruit. There had been no change in their lives, no repentance. And again, at the start of his ministry, he had gone in and cleansed house, so they had a, a baseline again, right? 
They had a baseline to start and, and come back and start changing their lives. And there was no change in their lives. All it was was religion. And you know, many times we use that in a negative term because religion has lots of leaves, but no fruit, right? Lots of action, but the heart's unmoved. Lots of activity, but you're the same person just going through the motions thinking somehow that this is going to earn you a spot. And that's just religion. It gives the appearance of a relationship with God, but upon examining it, it just seems to be very, very empty. You, you, you know some religious people. Say amen. amen. And, and they're kind of offensive, aren't they? Because uh, it's like they're not real. They're not genuine. They're, they're going through the motions. They're very religious, and they may try to impose their, their system of rules and regulations onto you, but they are devoid of a real relationship with God. Now, does God have rules and regulations? Yes. But that isn't the, the essence of our relationship with God. God is showing us how to live, showing us how to love, showing us the way. And so Jesus sees that the temple is just religious in nature and no real covenant relationship going on. In fact, in Galatians 6.15, Paul says this, For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision but what counts is you being a new creation. That's what counts. Religion doesn't count. A relationship counts. Can you say that with me? Religion doesn't count. Religion doesn't count. Okay, I got my wife on board. Religion doesn't count. Relationship does. That's, that's exactly what was going on. And because Jesus found no good fruit in the temple, primarily in the court of the Gentiles. Now, let me kind of give you a little geography. You had the Holy of Holies, right? And all, uh, uh, the high priest could go in there, only the high priest could go in there once a year, right? And then outside of the Holy of Holies, you had the holy place. And that's where the priest would go in and have the showbread and he would light the incense. And then outside of that building was the place, the court of the priest where they sacrifice the daily sacrifices. Or if you came and said, hey, I'd like to give a, a free will offering to the Lord. I want to have a barbecue. They'd, they'd slaughter your lamb. You'd get the meat and you would go have a celebration with your family. And then outside of that was the court of women. And part of that was also the court of men. Men could be there too. And then outside of that was the court of the Gentiles. If you were not a Jew, you could not go past the court of the Gentiles and go inward towards all the other things. Okay, So each court had restrictive people that could come in. But the court of the Gentiles was a shortcut to the city if you came in through the East Gate. So it was like a traffic jam in there all the time because people were not respecting the court of the Gentiles. They're using it like Loman. You know, hey, I want to get over here, so I go go through Loman or whatever preferred traffic pattern you, you have. You're going to go through it, right? Well, it gets a little worse, too, because historians outside of the Bible call the court of the Gentiles the Bazaar of Annas. Now, Annas was the high priest, and he was like a mafia don. Talk about religion gone bad. 
he would contract out, franchise out spaces in the court of the Gentiles for people to sell animals, wine, oil, and salt. All the things you need for a sacrifice. Now, if you were a pilgrim and it's Passover, you come to the temple and you bring your little lamb that you've been, it's perfect, you get there and you're like, okay, I wanna sacrifice this to, to my God. And they'd say, I'm sorry, it has a blemish. We'll pay you 10, 10 cents on the dollar for it. Now you're empty handed. It's been disapproved by the priests for a sacrifice, but by and large, look at this. There's a vendor that sells sacrifice, sacrificial lambs. You go over there and you have to pay 10 times, up to 10 times, historians tell us, the price of a lamb. Historians also tell us that Annas got a percentage of all the business going on in the court of the Gentiles. It was a money-making profit. I always follow the money, right? That's what they tell us at a Watergate, follow the money. And you follow the money and it lands at the high priest, corrupt as can be. So pilgrims had to buy from the priest at super inflated prices and the court of the Gentiles was not what it was supposed to be. Go back to the text for a second. Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer. But it lets off a, a house of prayer for the nations. See, the Gentiles were supposed to be able to come into the court and hear about the true God. They were able to come in and have reflection and peace and tranquility and see all the activity that was going on that was of a spiritual nature. It would be like you trying to get close to God and you go to Walmart during Black Friday and everybody is doing this business and you're going to find God there, right? The court of the Gentiles was set up so that it would be a house of prayer for the nations, and they have turned it into a mockery of what God has intended it. And it's not like it just happened. This was designed by the religious leaders. And because they could have done all of this business just outside of the temple down on another street, right? And the high priest took the money. And that's why if you go back to the text, he says, but you have made it a den of robbers. And that's where thieves hide, right? That's exactly where they hide. They're using the name of God to hide behind ripping off the, the populace, ripping off the public. Now Mark, the Gospel of Mark specifically mentions doves. And there's a reason, I think. Okay, if you were poor and you could not provide a lamb for Passover... You, could, you, you had to join another family. But there's other sacrifices that you were supposed to bring a lamb, but God made a provision for the poor. And he said, if you're too poor, you can bring a dove. And you could sacrifice the dove in place of the lamb. In fact, when Jesus' parents bring him to the temple for the first time, they should have brought a lamb, but they were so poor, they brought a dove. That shows you that Jesus was not from a wealthy family right there. But the point I'm trying to get across is that even the high priests were victimizing the poorest of poor of the nation. 
because Mark says that Jesus came in and overturned the cages of doves. That tells you that they were ripping off the poorest of poor. Uh, that would be, have, have you seen homeless in our town? It'd be like ripping them off. And you're like, who would rip off a homeless person? Seriously, you know? I'm gonna take your money, I'm gonna hold you hostage under my religion to steal from you. And they had no, and you wonder why Jesus was ticked? He was always a victim. I'm always an advocate for, for the poor, always. And so there was no good fruit. So let's go on to point number two. Point number two is this. Israel was fruitful of bad fruit, right? Instead of a house of prayer, God's temple became a house of prey. A little play on words there, right? Israel's leadership preyed on people for profit. And this really angered Jesus. So naturally, he cleansed the temple. And then look what he does in verse 47 and 48. And he was teaching daily in the temple, and the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do for the people were hanging on his words. Jesus is teaching the exact thing that was supposed to be happening. And so Jesus is bringing the good fruit, right? And this, it's just so basic. Even though Jesus knew he was literally hours away from being crucified, what is he doing? He's speaking the word. He's given truth. He's given fruit. He's, he's feeding the souls of people. And he taught in other passages out of Matthew and Mark, it says that he was healing. Now it's interesting that he goes after the religious leader, clears the temple, but all the poor people aren't afraid of him. They're actually, the, the, the sick and the lame are going into the court of the Gentiles because they could go there. They can't go any further, but they could get to the Gentile area. And guess what? Jesus was healing them. Again, fruit upon fruit. Now, we all have fruit in our lives, right? A good tree produces good fruit. A bad tree produces bad fruit. And so, really, it's, it's an introspective question. What kind of fruit's in your life? What kind of fruit is in your life? Now, the New Testament gives five definitions of fruit. So we'll use that as, as kind of a, a baseline to start. So, so the first fruit that we're going to examine out of the New Testament is this one. Fruit is a Christ-like character. And... We can go to the fruit of the Spirit because that is a Christ-like character. And what is the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. And there's one I missed. Gentleness. Gentleness, right? I know we run through them all the time. We, some of us have it memorized. We sing it at our after-school Bible club. But the question, I mean, we can glance over it and, and like, like a rock skipping off a, a, a lake and just like that. The question is, is how would you rank yourself? Would you take the time to actually say, how, how, how am I doing on love? 
Is there fruit of love in my life? Is there fruit of joy? Are you the kind of people that people are excited to have walk into their office or their life or classroom or workspace and they're like, oh yeah, Hannah's here. That's the joy. It's joy inside, but are you a carrier of that joy? Are you a carrier of, of that love? It, because fruit is something that other people partake in, right? And, the, and I love that it's not the fruits of the Spirit. It is the fruit. It's like a section, a, a wedge. A wedgie is love, joy, peace. It's the whole package, right? So how are you doing on love? How are you doing on joy? How are you doing on peace? How are you doing on patience? Ooh, now we're getting personal. How about kindness? Are you less kind in your car or more kind in your car? I mean, did you hear about the road rage the other day about a bicyclist and uh, off a of university? In fact, he's a student at, at, at your guys' school. And, you know, he, he got shot because he lipped off to a driver. And it's just like, wow, there's a lot of unkindness in this world. That we can see easily. But are you kind? How are you? What's the fruit in your life of kindness? And not only kindness, but goodness and faithfulness and gentle and self-control. I mean, those are the things that we need to look at because Jesus is coming into your temple. You, you know, Scripture says that when you become a believer in Christ, the Holy Spirit resides and he calls this body of ours a, a temple. And that's why we have to take care of the temple and that's why he wants to always come in and cleanse it. Not because he's angry with us, it's because he's in the process of perfecting us and changing us and transforming us into the men and women that we're called to be. And so, how would you rate your fruit? Have you ever bought old fruit that's discounted? Yeah, you, you know, you, you work at a grocery store and you're looking at the bananas and they're all brown. What do you do? You, you don't raise the price. What do you do? You lower it. Why? Need to move the merchandise. How would you rate the fruit in your life of Christ-like character? Would your neighbors, your co-workers, find your fruit sweet? Or would they find it not so sweet? Just an area to think about. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is not a, one of those sermons. This is, no, uh, he wants to cleanse your temple, right? Second thing of that's defines fruit in the New Testament is this. Uh, a life characterized by good works. Colossians 1.10 says it this way, Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, bearing fruit in every good work. Now we do good works not to earn love, we do good works because we are loved. Totally different motivation, right? Yes. Totally different motivation. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, bearing fruit in every good work. Yeah, well, well, what have you done in regards to that kind of fruit in your life? Are you a selfless person? Do you take the shopping cart back that somebody left in the middle of the Walmart parking lot back to the corral? 
say yes, otherwise I'm going to get after you. <laughs> Thank you, Micah. <laughs> we are to have a Christ-like character that then lends itself to a Christ-like disposition about the way we live our lives. And it has to show up in our lives, you know, head, heart, hand. What God's word says to me, I'm going to do. And, and it, it shows up in the way you live. It shows up. What, what would you do today if you found that your neighbor had cancer? What, what would you do? Anyone? Okay, pray for them. Well, what else could you do that's a little more concrete? Offer help, sweep a driveway, make a meal, take them to the doctor, maybe watch their, their child. There are lots of things. What's motivating us? Love, joy, peace. What kind of fruit do you have in your life? What kind of things are you living your life for? Number three is this, a faithful witness uh, is fruit. If you lead someone to Christ, um, New Testament calls that fruit. It's not a notch on your belt. It is you have produced some fruit because you were able to communicate the gospel to somebody else and they have become born again and a new living creature, a new creation, I should say. And in Romans, Paul says, I want to go to Rome. Remember, he writes to Rome. He hasn't been there yet. He'll get there, <laughs> cuffed, but he'll get there. He'll get there in prison, but he'll get there eventually. But he writes this epistle before he gets there, and he says, I want to go to Rome in order that I may reap some fruit or harvest from you. He wants to share the gospel to somebody that's never heard so they can be part of the family of God. And so the New Testament describes that as fruit as well. And so we look at our lives and says, am I communicating the gospel very well to the people around me? Because a life lived in the gospel spreads the gospel. Unless you're just playing religion. If you're playing religion, you, you're probably going to just drive people away from God, right? But if you're really a believer walking with the Lord, people are going to see that fruit in your life, a change in your life. You're not the same man. You're not the same husband. You're not the same worker than you were just five years ago. Why? Because God is in the process of changing you, of transforming you. Number four is this. It sounds funny, but fruit is praise. It's a pair of lips that praise God. It comes out of Hebrews. It says, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips that acknowledge his name. That, that is a kind of fruit. So we have a Christ-like character. We have Christ-like good works. We have the ability to share the gospel and have other people come to, to join in that exciting relationship and the praise of our lips. And the last one is this, a generous heart and wallet and purse. That also sounds funny, but the fruit of our labor is what? A paycheck, right? Don't we like to think that? The fruit of, of a farmer's labor is the crop 
or someone that has an orchard, the fruit of their labor is a fruit. Well, the fruit of our labor is primarily money, right? And Paul says this in Philippians, I don't seek the money, but I seek the fruit that comes, that goes to your credit. And so money is a tool, but without the fruit of a generous heart, it doesn't get used, does it? Well, uh, it's just amazing. We, we, this past week, we, we had a man that gave us a check for $100,000. And this week, we put an offer in on a piece of land that's 10 acres because uh, the price was right. And it's just like, well, that's a lot of fruit that's going to go to this family's account because they're allowing us. And we have to still do our due diligence, so it's not a said and done deal. We have to do all the work, and it may come to fruition. I, I hope it does. I pray it does. And I would enjoin you to be praying for that process that if God's in this, we want it to be very evident and we want all the things to happen that need to happen and to have wisdom. Um, we're getting uh, 10 acres for $250,000. That is dirt cheap. And so it, it's a miracle. The, the money's a miracle. That's fruit. Uh, it's another miracle that w this piece of land became available the day the check arrived. Isn't that like God? You know, and the offer has been accepted. Now we have two weeks to do all our due diligence to make sure that the utilities can maintain uh, a church and all the zoning is right. And it's just like, wow, somebody has produced a lot of big fruit with just something as dirty and filthy as money, you know. Think about this. How much money have you made in the last 10 years? Add it up all together. And you're, you'll, you'll actually be quite astounded, won't you? Like, I made that much money? Where is it? What happened to it? It's a tool. How did you use it? Did you use it on yourself selfishly or were you generous? Were you able to love on that neighbor that needed compassion? Help somebody with a funeral expense? Have you ever done that before? I'll tell you, there are times when that is the worst time where, where a family is looking at a funeral bill and for you to, to instead just attending the funeral, step up to the plate and give them a check and say this is to cover some of the... It costs 10 grand to bury somebody these days. Less to cremate. But I'm just saying, what motivates that? That's fruit. That is a heart that's generous. And a, a, a fruitful, generous heart will invest in the lives of other people. And that's just how it is. So Jesus, he cleansed the temple. But he constantly wants us to cleanse the temple, right? And again, it's not in a brow-beating way. It's just like, look at yourself in the mirror and say, Okay, God, what needs to change? What, what needs to change? Maybe it's your coping devices. You know, maybe it's your whining. M maybe it's lust. Maybe you think too highly of yourself. And maybe it's something else that goes back to your childhood that's just so deep-seated in your DNA. 
but you need to address it. It's that, that, that Achilles heel that needs to be dealt with. And God is doing this so nicely and just bringing it to our attention right here. So, what does Jesus really need to turn over in your life? I'm going to end the message right there. Just more of a challenge and one, a challenge of hope. You know, being a pastor, I've had a chance to counsel a lot of marriages that were on rocky grounds for a little while and they got better. And until each party got honest and kind of clean house, they were unable to move forward. And the marriage stayed exactly where it was at or went down instead of addressing in truth and in love what needed to be addressed in truth and in love. But when that happened, guess what? The marriage got super strong and been married, you know, years after the fact that they had some bumpy roads along the way. Because we have bumpy roads, say amen to that. But when we sit down with the ultimate counselor, the Holy Spirit, and we're honest with him, he cleanses us through his word, and we become clean, and it's the greatest feeling in the world to be clean, to feel clean spiritually, to feel clean emotionally. Because the baggage that the Satan was just pinning on you every day has been cut loose from you because you are willing to have the house cleansed. Father God, in the name of Jesus, we come before you and we're so thankful that you are the house cleaner and you do it so gently and you nudge us to perfection. And we thank you that by your grace, we go. But you don't leave us where you found us. And that is the most remarkable thing about your gospel, is that not only do you save us, you remake us. Father, we come to you now in humility, and we want you to examine our hearts alongside us and gently point out the things that we should do differently to change a little bit of our worldview a little bit more today so that we would be more pleasing to you but also reflect more of your glory to a very dark and unkind world. We love you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.